0: Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by Interim Pastor Derek Gecki. He is preaching from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Today, we are continuing our series, The Disciples' Toolbox, which is a series of uh, sermons we're looking at the basic everyday spiritual disciplines that we believe all Christians should have in practice. Uh, So far, we've looked at the disciplines of rest and reading scripture. And today, we're looking at, as I'm sure you've guessed, how to pray. Uh, I'm sure some of us have immediate thoughts on what that means, what it looks like. Some of you might be like, well, I know this, Uh, time to to take a nap. Uh, Others might be like, I've never prayed in my life. I'm glad that we're talking about this. Either way, I think we all have a maybe little preconception of what is the right way to pray, what is the wrong way to pray, so and so on. What I'd like us to do today is take a step back from maybe our preconceptions or where we think we are with prayer, and just take a look at what Jesus and also the rest of Scripture says about prayer. And as we do that, I want to ask three questions. What is prayer? What is prayer for? And how should we pray? So what is prayer? What is prayer for? And how should we pray? Would you pray with me for this message? Dear Father, um, I think prayer can be something that could be very, very simple in our minds and for others might be a grand mystery. And sometimes it's the same at the same time. And I think we all have a lot of questions about prayer. um, And I just pray that you would guide us through this discussion, through this sermon. Uh, help us hear what you have to say. Let these words be yours, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, uh, I apologize in advance because I'm gonna start us in a very weird place. Has anyone ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Nobody? Just, thank you, thank you. You don't, have to, you don't have to raise your hand. I mean, I appreciate knowing I'm not the only one in the room. Um, <laughs> But uh, so Dungeons and Dragons, for those who are unfamiliar, if you've seen Stranger Things, then you kind of have a rough idea of what Dungeons and Dragons is. It's a bunch of nerds sitting around a circle pretending, and there's math and dice involved to make sure that there are rules. When I was growing up, uh, all the way back in the 1980s, uh, there, was this, um, there was this phenomenon called the Satanic Panic that was running around, where Dungeons and Dragons was considered the occult. Like, you're worshiping Satan if you so much as look at the book. So for many years, that was all I knew. I was like, oh, it's it's, it's the devil's work. And then in my teens, a friend invited me, and I was just like, okay, okay, I'll try. And I was like, oh, it's nerds with math. Okay, that's all it is. Um, Now, D&D... Uh, is a fantasy game. And being a fantasy game, there's, of course, magic. You know, every fantasy has some sort of magic. And you could wield magic. You could be a wizard or a sorcerer or a a cleric. Uh, But there are two main fields of magic. There was arcane magic, where you are the wizard. You manipulate the energies of the universe yourself to achieve a a goal of some sort, which is usually throwing a fireball at people. or, you do divine magic. Ooh, divine magic is where you ask a deity to do the same thing. <laughs> That's, that, so, the, the results were the same. Whether you're throwing the fireball or calling one down from, you know, Bahamut or whatever deity you worship in the game. Um, the words were the same. You say a few words, you wave your hands, and voila! A spell is cast. You've altered reality in some way. Now, of course... We recognize that fantasy games, movies, books, uh, we, they are fantasies. We don't believe people can actually <laughs> do magic in that way. But I dare say most of the world still sees divine magic or, honestly, in the game, prayer. They say prayer and magic spells is basically the same thing. They might view prayer as an empty gesture. It's, you you say a few words, you fold your hands, and voila, nothing happens. Uh, They might view it as a power play. I am in touch with the, the ultimate power in the universe, and I'm going to direct it to accomplish my goals. Or, they really, really, really wish it was true. They would think that would be so amazing if it was true. And in moments of absolute desperation, they might ask for prayer, without actually believing in it. I've had a lot of friends online, when they get to really desperate times and my heart goes out to them, uh, they'll, sometimes they will ask for a prayer, but they'll usually pair it with uh, positive energy. Oh, uh, did someone just cast a spell? Okay, <laughs> hold on. How dare you? Um, but anyway, apologies for anyone watching the stream if I'm off camera right now. Uh, I'll keep talking. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So they'll ask for things like, um, please, please send prayer and good energy or positive vibes. What they mean is they appreciate the sentiment. But if they're equating the two, it's kind of like not really expecting anything. I've also seen some folks uh, who offer to perform spells in the same cases as those who are offering prayer. Uh, They adhere to the Wiccan belief where, you know, they'll go outside, do something that I don't understand with nature, and they believe it's going to achieve achieve the same effect. But for those who don't believe, it's all the same. Now, this isn't a new phenomenon. It's not like us modern folk just suddenly came to this conclusion. The equating of divine intervention with what I'll call human invocation is actually very old. If you go back to Exodus chapter 7, we see Aaron and Moses approaching Pharaoh and to prove that God sent them, they perform miracles on God's behalf. They throw the stick down, it turns to a snake, and lo and behold, Pharaoh brings out his magicians, his wizards, and they do the same thing. Later on in Acts chapter 8, we see a man by the name of Simon who's just described as a magician, and they say he performed magic. And when the apostles show up and start laying their hands on people, and the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, and so they see transformation, Simon's like, How do I do that trick? In his head, it's just two sides of the same coin. Now, we're about to get into what Jesus and the Bible actually say about prayer, but first I want to ask ourselves a question. To what degree do we veer towards that mentality? Do we say out loud that we believe in the power of prayer, but we actually put about as much stock in it as we would a magic spell? Do we think of prayer as good vibes or positive energy or at the end of the day, just wishful thinking? If that's the case, and I'm not here to like, you know, guilt anyone, but if that's the case, then I think we have a profound misunderstanding of what prayer actually is. I'm, I'm sure if I asked you directly What is prayer? And most of us, Christian or not, would probably say talking to God, right? And I think that's 100% accurate. That's a great place to start. So then we have to go to why do we talk to God? Sometimes we talk to God to praise him. We give him thanks for what he's blessed us with. Sometimes we go to God for confession. We say, God, I've committed this sin. I apologize. Please forgive me. Or we ask him for help with whatever is going on in our lives. And from my experience, I'm pretty sure it's that last one, uh, the asking for help, that dominates our prayer lives. I can't recall ever being at a church meeting where we went around a circle and said, does anyone have any confessions to share? Uh, It's usually prayer requests, right? Um, Now, just to clarify, this is good. This is right. God wants us to ask him for things, and, and sharing our needs and praying over each other is how we build a healthy, loving community. We need to know what's going on in each other's lives so we can actively love each other through that. But going to that, back to that secular idea that prayer is just human invocation, when we pray, are we talking to God or talking at God? Are we engaging with our Heavenly Father the way we would talk to a very close friend or a spouse or a parent. When you talk to those people, anyone that's really close to you in your life, someone you really trust, you like to hang out with, you love, when you talk to them, are all your conversations like 90% asking for favors or asking for help? Do you go to your closest friend and say, hey, here are all my problems, let me list them out for you, could you please take care of them for me? Oh, and uh, if you don't, uh, you know, no pressure, but I might start to wonder if you love me or whether you even exist. Okay, I love you, bye-bye. I don't think that's how we talk to the people that we care about the most. Now, again, let's hold off on any guilt trips, all right? Just, Just hold off. Instead, let's look at how Jesus describes prayer. In our passage today, it's the Lord's Prayer. If you guys want to join in with me, I will not tell you to fight the impulse. Now, I know to some degree we've heard the Lord's Prayer so many times. It's so routine. I don't know how much we often, like, just stop and think about it. Um, But notice how it opens. Uh, Our Father in heaven. The focus is on God, the Father. And it's recognizing his status, that he's in heaven, that he's holy or hallowed, that he's a king, which implies he has a kingdom. And then it says, your kingdom come. It's inviting him in. Throughout Scripture, prayer isn't just talking to God, but it's a conscious act of inviting him into our lives. In some cases, like in the Psalms, you'll find a lot of this, it's not just inviting him, it's it's like begging him, please come. Psalm 42 verses 1 through 2 reads, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That sounds really desperate, right? Well, but what does that mean when we say we're inviting God into our lives? Because I think our practical brains start to protest a little bit. Isn't he already here? We say that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We say he's omniscient. He knows all things. We say he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. How can I invite someone to a place they are already here? I invite you guys to church. I, hey, you're all here. Great. Accomplished. And Jesus says later, uh, before the, the, the prayer in our passage, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him which begs the question if god knows what we need what's the point in telling him and this i think points to what we need to recognize what is prayer for when we look at prayer throughout the bible i think we focus on the requests you know we see people praying god please heal my son uh, please avenge us against our enemies i I worry that we might be losing sight of how much prayer is dedicated to recognition. The first third of the Lord's prayer is just basking in who God is. Is this the, the praise portion of the prayer? I mentioned earlier, sometimes we pray to God to praise him. It is, but it's praise that's primarily us reminding ourselves who we're actually talking to. Recognizing who we're talking to is something we typically just do subconsciously. You know, you see the person, your brain does all the calculations for you, but it has vast implications on what we say and how we say it. If you need to ask your closest friend for a favor, um, you're, you're probably going to be very casual, probably going to be very earnest. You, you probably have a, a, a good sense that they'll be there for you, they'll back you up. Um, but you're just going to be like, hey, could you do this favor for me? It's very, very casual. If you need to ask your boss for a favor, you're probably going to approach them a little differently. There will be a higher level of respect. It'll be less casual. Their ability to do the favor might be higher. You know, you could ask your closest friend for a loan. Maybe they can help you. But if you need a raise, well, your boss is the guy you got to talk to. But if you go to a world leader, like the King of England, the President of the United States, you need a favor. Their ability to grant it is much, much higher, right? They have far more capability, far more power. But your approach, your demeanor is going to be drastically different, I would hope. I would hope you wouldn't stroll up to Biden and be like, hey, buddy, can you do me a favor? and you probably wouldn't be going there unless you were completely out of options. There are aspects of God that the Lord's Prayer calls out that we do need to continuously remind ourselves of when we're praying. First, he's in heaven. What does that mean? It means he's above everything. Nothing is beyond his reach or his ability. He is hallowed. Again, holy. He's perfect in word and deed. Even his name deserves reverence. Hallowed be your name. He is king. That means his will is absolute. There's no one higher, and his kingdom is coming. Does this sound like someone you would dare approach with anything but fear and reverence? Does this sound like someone you would dare approach as some kind of personal assistant or wish-granting genie? Does this sound like someone you would dare approach unless you were in the direst of need? In his uh, children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, sorry, there's going to be a lot of fantasy in this sermon, um, C.S. Lewis has a character named Aslan. Uh, many people look at Aslan as an analog for Jesus, um, I- think that's fair. I've heard other people say, no, no, it's a fantasy. Like, I don't know, it's pretty strong implication, guys. But um, before we meet Aslan, our two protagonists in the first book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Susan and Lucy, they're exploring this magical land. They find that all these animals can talk. I'm sure you guys are at least vaguely familiar with the series, if you've seen the movies, what have you. And they keep hearing about Aslan. Aslan, he's the king of this land. And all of a sudden, they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, which is I guess that's their names. <laughs> I guess they're the only talking beavers and in Narnia. Otherwise, it's a confusing phone book. Um, but the beavers reveal Aslan is a lion. And we get this exchange. And I apologize. I'm probably going to read it in the style I'd read it to my son. So enjoy the voices. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. He, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anything who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. All right. Okay, I guess I one man show in my future. All right. (laughs) He isn't safe. Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion, but he's good. And there's the crux and the aspect of God that I conveniently forgot. He's our father. He's our father. Safe? Of course he isn't safe. Have you seen the Old Testament? He's fierce and uncontrollable. He appears in earthquakes and pillars of fire, rivers of blood. Of course he isn't safe. But he loves us beyond words, beyond the ability to even understand. And that makes all the difference. Going back to the idea of needing a favor from a major world leader, um, and a, Originally, was thinking president is the best example, and I realized, oh gosh, I think I'm stealing from Tim Keller because he used the same one. So, uh, we'll use world leader because I don't want to plagiarize. Um, if you went to someone in that position needing a favor, you'd probably have a real hard time even getting close enough to ask. Like they got security, they got bodyguards. Who are you to them? But you know who doesn't have that problem? Are their kids. Doesn't matter how old they are, doesn't matter what their problem is, they can go to their parent, father, whoever's in that position for anything, any time. And while that person's ability to grant their requests is the same as it would be for us, again, vastly superior to anyone else we could ask, the relationship is very, very different. So when I talk about whether we can approach the president or whoever for anything but the direst of need, that's because our relationship only allows for that. But if the president was our dad, then yeah, we could go to him for anything. And if God is our father, whose power and love are both infinitely greater than a human president's, then how much more can we go to him for even the smallest of requests and still know he'd be there for us? Jesus makes a point to ask, give us this day our daily bread. That hardly seems like the direst of needs, right? Now, on the one hand, this is confirmation that no request of God is too small, okay? On the other hand, it's also a clue that all of our needs are ultimately satisfied only by the one who created and sustains all of existence, God created us and the food we eat and the water we drink and he designed all of it to work together and it is only through his will that anything exists at all. So, yeah, even the smallest request, a crust of bread, is a miraculous gift. And in the end, only God can provide it. So it's, it's right to ask him for that. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He moves to asking for the greatest need of all, when he goes to the phrase, forgive us our debts. Recognizing who God is is the first vital step of real, empowered, effective prayer. The second is recognizing who we are in light of who he is. When Jesus gets to the final third of the Lord's prayer, he's focusing on our most desperate needs from God, which are salvation and sanctification we see uh, salvation called out with forgive us our debts. As Christians, we believe that due to our sin, we owe God an infinite debt, one that is far too great for us to do anything about on our own. Only through the intervention of Jesus Christ could that debt be paid, and praise God, it has been through his life, death, and resurrection, and that's our salvation. That's what we hold to as Christians. But there's also the step of sanctification where us recognizing that, we have to respond to it. When he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. By recognizing our own sinful state and how much God has forgiven us, we have no excuse to hold anything against anyone. I know that's very hard sometimes, but consider if God has forgiven you Trillions upon trillions in debt. Trillions! The, the national debt. It's all on you! And God forgave it. How could you turn to anyone and demand $5? We also see that, having been forgiven, it's nothing less than a direct insult and betrayal of God to go on sinning. It's spitting in the face of the one who died for us. And yet, we still need help not to do it. God knows this. This is why Jesus teaches us to ask, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. We still need help. As much as it it breaks our heart to think, oh gosh, when I sin, I'm spitting in God's face. He knows that you're still, there's still the old man and the new man. There's still brokenness inside us. But this aspect of the Lord's Prayer is us taking the time to recognize we are desperate, fallen, terrified creatures. (laughs) And yet still we are welcomed to the throne of the Most High God and allowed to not only ask for daily bread, but expect it. So what is prayer ultimately for? Is it about the requests? Or is it about recognizing our situation? The answer is, it's both, but not quite. Because ultimately, prayer is about our relationship with God. Again, going back to how you talk to your best friend or spouse, is it only to ask for stuff? Is it only to recognize, you are my best friend, I am your best friend? Amen. Amen. Prayer is about consistently reminding ourselves who God is and what that means for us as his children. It's about sharing this understanding with God and inviting him into our lives regularly and without pretense, without the need to have our lives cleaned up. In other words, it's about being open and honest with him at all times about where you're at. If you need to confess a sin, if you have needs, and by asking for daily bread, Jesus is confirming everything is a need, and it's okay to ask. It's, it's, it's desired that we ask. Prayer is about tuning our hearts to the reality of God's love, His power, and our place in His kingdom. And when we come together to pray, when we pray in prayer group, at community group, even if it's just like two of us, it's The goal should be to help each other do the same thing. Tune our hearts to God, remind each other who he is, who we are, and thus what we can dare to ask for. This is why the prayers that were presented at the beginning of our passage, Jesus condemns. They're not about the relationship at all. If you're turning your prayers into a big display, you know, praying loudly for all to hear, it's not about connecting with God anymore. It's about drawing attention to yourself or maybe to the message you're trying to like shoehorn into the prayer. That's why Jesus says, go pray in private, because then your focus is about your relationship. Or if you're just saying words over and over, over for hours and not actively thinking when Jesus talks about heaping empty phrases, then your only goal is What earning the request, like doing enough prayer that God will answer it, but it's not about connecting with Him. So, that all being said, how do we pray effectively? The Lord's Prayer is a very good blueprint for prayer. It it covers all the bases. It recognizes who God is. It recognizes who we are in relation to Him, and It makes our requests known in light of that recognition. And something I want to touch on in in that regard, um, we have to believe when we pray that if we are asking for something, we have to believe he can do it. There's plenty of passages in the Bible where Jesus, it literally says he can't perform miracles because of unbelief. I don't know to, to what degree that's connected, whether that falls on our shoulders, or if it's a choice of his, I don't know, but there is something to be said that if you doubt, there's a barrier there. We have to believe he wants to do it. He wants to bless us, we have, because that means we acknowledge he loves us, that we trust in that. If we don't trust that, there's a break in the relationship. And we have to believe that if he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want, it's because he's above us and knows ultimately what's best for us. Too often I worry uh, when I hear people pray that we focus on solutions that make sense to us. We pray for um, healing, but the focus is on guide the doctor's hands, get us the right medical care, um, pray that everything goes well. This is all good and great, but I'm worried to what degree do, do we not believe in miraculous healing anymore. And I'm not saying we have to like go one way or the other. I'm saying, can we pray in a way that we let God decide? We're not trying to like shoehorn him into what we think is the best solution, but be like, God, I have this need. Please act. But the Lord's prayer is a blueprint No relationship can survive on conversations that always follow the exact same pattern. Otherwise, that does become routine, and it might become empty phrases. Now, at this point, I I don't know to what extent you might be thinking, okay, so if I'm going to pray, I have to be quiet, penitent, grateful for even a crust of bread, but still trusting God loves me, and that should do it. Not quite. The Lord's Prayer is a great blueprint, but it's only one example in a myriad of prayers we see throughout the Bible, all of which God saw fit to include in his word. If you go through the Psalms, which is a book of prayers, it's what it is. I know uh, John Mulaney jokes about them being bad songs. they like, well, John, it was written in a different language, so yeah, it wouldn't rhyme when it's translated. <laughs> but also, they're primarily prayers and songs. But if you go through the book of Psalms, you'll find the patterns in the Lord's prayer echoed throughout. You will find prayers of recognition, prayers that almost exclusively focus on that, prayers of repentance, prayers of contrition, prayers of requests. You'll find them all reflected in the prayers, but you'll also find some very weird ones. You'll find prayers that are wild and untamed and scary, you'll find prayers full of rage and confusion. One of the most disturbing ones, and I apologize, but I'm going to share it because we've got it. It's scripture. Psalm 137 ends with this phrase. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Do we think God would grant or even condone what's being asked for there? Or did he include that in scripture? Did he let that get written and put in to show us that he welcomes all of our thoughts, our fears, our hopes, our feelings, our primal screams in moments of confusion And feeling lost and he's like I just want you to talk to me be open be honest I'm not afraid of how you feel I'm not afraid of your condition I'm not afraid of your confusion he wants us to approach him and cry out to him as little children would their father boldly confidently unashamedly without filters when my son calls out to me, regardless of why, my immediate thought isn't, now, Amadeus, did you take some time to recognize my sovereignty? <laughs> Are you coming to me with humility and respect? Do you have a head, head bowed, eyes closed, penitent heart, ready to confess your sins? No. The second I hear, Daddy, my heart leaps. And I have two immediate thoughts. First is joy. Joy that even at two, he trusts that I have his best interest at heart and I'll be there for him. (laughs) That's, that's, That's amazing. And two, I need to go confirm that for him. Now, as an imperfect parent with a bad sleep schedule. The degree to which these reactions actually affect me vary with my mood. If I'm tired, if I know Anna's with him, if he's in bed and he just needs to go to sleep because I am above him and I know what is better for him in that moment. But the heart reaction, my immediate impulse, is always the same. And my love for him grows every time he does it. And if I, an imperfect, sinful, broken, stupid man... Have that reaction to my child. Can you not see that in your father? Never allow yourself to fall into the trap that you aren't ready to pray or that you're not in the right place. God is not afraid of your condition or your circumstance, your sin, your bad mood, your your hatred at those people you saw online today. He's not afraid of that. Because through Jesus Christ, he's already sanctified you of it. Heck, God even promises to help you if you don't know what to say. In Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And if the goal of prayer is to tune our hearts to God, then the times when we can't bring ourselves to pray are exactly the times we need to do it the most. If your heart is heavy and you can't figure out what to pray, after all this... 30 plus minutes of sermon. I guess that my advice boils down to this. Just say, Daddy. 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 Because in that one word, that one word, you recognize who God is, you recognize who you are, and you make your request known in light of that. Daddy, I need you. Daddy. I don't know what to do, Daddy. And believe me, if, I, if my reaction is to go to my son in that moment, he's going to be running to you and yours. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.